Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. My name is Ben Myers. I'm a research analyst and a podcast host joined by a co-host today. This is Tuck Podcast guest number 37, Chris Spoke. How's it going, Chris? It's going well. Happy to be here on uh, this side of the table. Nice, nice. <laughs> Love it. So before we read the bio of our fantastic guest that we'll be interviewing today, I will read our sponsor, which is the BCGI Barron Consulting Group. They're an executive search firm dedicated to the real estate industry. Since 1995, Robert Barron and BCGI have completed over 1,000 searches on behalf of developers, investors, occupiers, and lenders across North America. Their scope includes acquisitions, development, asset management, finance, corporate real estate, and board directors. BCGI has established partnerships with pension funds, REITs, and fund managers searching for talent, and they are a trusted source for career advice and guidance for real estate professionals in North America. BCGI can be reached at www.bcgi.ca. So we have an awesome guest all the way from Toronto, Ontario via Montreal. So so, Chris, why don't, you, why don't you take it away? Yeah, so our guest today is Rob Spanier, uh, who is an international real estate development advisor dedicated to creating innovative next-generation destinations and places with expertise in creating thriving communities with uniquely curated specialty retail experiences. By playing an integral role on multidisciplinary project teams, Rob commits his extensive knowledge in large-scale mixed-use development, master planning, specialty leasing, and deal-making, as well as programming and activation in order to create vibrant and prosperous communities. After working in the real estate sector for 20 years, Rob started his firm, The Spanier Group, in 2018. This journey began when Rob spent five years at Interwest Corporation, leading an international leasing team that created iconic destination resort towns worldwide. From IntroS, Rob came to Toronto and worked for an advisory services firm for 11 years before forming the Spanier Group. Spanier Group recently celebrated its five-year anniversary and has worked on over 30 projects in Canada and the U.S. Passionate about placemaking and developing great places, Rob has been actively involved with the Urban Land Institute since 2007. Rob holds an interdisciplinary Bachelor of Arts degree in Industrial Relations with a minor in Economics from McGill University. Rob grew up in Montreal, Quebec, and is passionate about helping to develop places where people could connect with each other and to their environments, where memories are born and last forever. So, thank you to the sh- or, sorry, welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks for having me, guys. Wow, that, was a good, pleasure. that was a good read. And that quick, was that too. was great. I learned a little bit about myself on that whole. That was great. <laughs> it's all the good stuff. All right, so let's let's jump into it. Let's hear a little bit more. You're a Montreal guy. You went to McGill. So, how did you end up at uh, at Interwest? Well, it was an interesting thing. I I was you know growing up in Montreal truly fortunate to to grow up in a city that was so small, so compact and very European in nature. Everything was 10 or 15 minutes away, not like the big city of Toronto, where today it took me about 45 minutes to get down here, (laughs) even though I tried hard. But, you know, very fortunate to grow up in Montreal. And certainly, you know, my dad happened to be uh, his doctor and he was on uh, the admissions board of uh, McGill Medical you know, uh, medicine. And <laughs> when I tried to explain to him that there was this amazing school in Ontario I wanted to go to, he said, there's no chance you're going to McGill. Yeah. <laughs> it just was what it was. But McGill was an amazing opportunity for me to continue to live uh, in a great city. And 
I actually didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. I wasn't sure. I knew that I loved dealing with people. I knew that I loved um, just making great things happen. I, the industrial relations in my background was more human resources. And I worked for this big tech company and spent a summer getting all of these people great jobs. And I asked myself, I said, I don't want to be giving people the great jobs. I'd love to have a great job. And it just so happens that uh, after I graduated university, I ended up meeting up with people from IntraWest, who uh, at the time, IntraWest was one of the most important real estate development companies, certainly in Canada, and was developing resorts and resort towns around the world, in Canada, the United States, Europe, and the Caribbean, and got the opportunity to meet someone through a, a very dear relationship of mine and all of a sudden fell into this opportunity because IntraWest at the time in 1999 was expanding uh, globally and had acquired all of these sites, but started to focus on these villages. And it was actually a really insightful comment when I met uh, the senior vice president at the time, a guy named Lauren Bassel. And when we were talking about real estate, he said, look, the company's split into two, two, two sides, operations and development. And so you can think about operations like the guy that gets up every morning, looks out at the sun, rolls out his hot dog cart, opens up the umbrella and makes the best hot dog every day. And the customers love it. And he's smiling. And then there's this other side of the company called development. And we build dreams. Every day we wake up to build the coolest places. Do you want to make hot dogs or do you want to build dreams? And obviously it was a little bit of a play on words, but I loved the idea. I knew nothing about real estate, but what I did know about was place because I grew up in a city and I didn't realize what an impact Montreal had had on my own upbringing, my psyche, the experience. And what IntraWest was trying to do is to build these great places for people who for the most, you know, for the most part were going skiing or they were going golfing. But what else could you do when you go there? And this captive audience was looking for other things to do. So IntraWest built this company that was real estate focused of selling homes and condos to people uh, flagging some of these units as hotels, right? Because hotel condominiums were big back in the day. But they also had these amazing villages and they had learned through great villages around the world in Europe and other parts that these places really could create the character and the, and the fabric of an environment. The challenge was, could you do it from scratch? Could you start over and do it from new? Because these villages were built thousands of years ago in Europe in all parts. But the identity of these resorts became so clear that people loved the primary experience, which was the hook, the skiing, the golfing, the ocean. But to stay, to become a part of that community or to invest in that community, you needed more. And that's where I got my start in learning about commercial real estate. And it was really the ground floor, 50 feet up, as I always say, and Ben, you've heard me say this before, the <laughs> ground floor, 50 feet up. People live there. They live on the sidewalk. They live on the streets where they walk through the neighborhoods. But what really ends up happening is that's where they start to have a connection to place. Uh, we're sitting in the east end of downtown Toronto right now as we're chatting. The Beaches has an incredible, um, very special, almost um, connected feeling for people sometimes when they come to this neighborhood. And when I moved from Montreal, which I loved, I realized that the thing that no one told me in Toronto is that Toronto is an incredible city of neighborhoods. You may know the CN Tower, you may know the Sky Dome, 
but do you actually know the junction? Do you know uh, King Street West? Do you know uh, Queen and Broadview? All of these places were so amazing. And so when I moved here, I started to discover that. But really, my passion was about how the ground floor came to be and how to create those places. So for a guy that studied really human behavior in university, industrial relations is sociology, economics, management, and law of business. And for all of those listeners who are thinking about a degree, it is a very complicated degree. I do not suggest you head down that path. I always thought I'd go back and get my MBA for business. But then when I worked for IntraWest for five years, I got that MBA traveling the world, doing business in Europe, doing business in parts of the United States. And I would live in these places and actually go and identify the fabric of these communities and a little further afar to create the village at Squaw Valley, the village, uh, Copper Mountain, Blue Mountains, uh, Mammoth, Copper, Lake Las Vegas, Les Arc in the France, in the Savoie, France region. These places became iconic for IntraWest of creating a place. And why did people want to buy real estate? They wanted to live above these environments and close to the natural advantages. And what I quickly learned, and this is how my career evolved, I'm sure we'll get into it. People love to be living in an environment that makes them feel good. They may have to live in a city, but they're going to choose what neighborhood to live in. And 30 years ago, you would travel for your job because you graduated university and I'm heading off to go live in Saskatoon or San Francisco. Well, today people think very differently about how and where they choose to live and where they're going to work. And they definitely think about where they want to live. That's interesting. You know, I, I got married at Blue Mountain. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't but, know that. That's yeah. amazing. So that no, was because I love, you know, the village atmosphere and it was so much things to do. And yeah. So. That was my, one of my babies. I always call Blue Mountain my baby because <laughs> the village, if you know Copper Blues, there's a restaurant in the village called Copper Blues or K2 or the Pizza Firehall Pizza. All of those businesses, when I worked for IntraWest, I went out and handpicked those operators to go and operate in blue. The real story is not, you know, well, great, you did some leasing. Well, the real story is 24 <laughs> years later, they're all still there. That's awesome. And they have, you know, they have businesses, careers, they've made uh, great families and, and, and employees that have stayed with them for so many years. And that's what's so special to me. That's cool. That's yeah. Cool. So I, I think uh, this sounds to me like the perfect background for placemaking. I, I was uh, in Montreal just a few months ago with my family. First time I'd gone with my family. It's my, it's my opinion that Montreal is the only true Canadian city. And, and like my cynical take on Toronto is we're somewhat of a Potemkin city where we have this kind of like urban downtown core and the rest is kind of pretty suburban, including in like parts of the West End and East End that are not too far removed from the downtown. So Montreal does feel like a true urban environment. And then when you, when you talk about these um, resort destinations or ski towns and that sort of thing, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you're looking to older cities for inspiration, right? Like older cities that have more of kind of like a pedestrian layout and 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 maybe higher densities, but nothing too tall, kind of like a missing middle type type density. But really looking at built forms that emerged, let's say before aggressive zoning kind of forced us all into detached or semi-detached houses. First of all, is, it, is that is that true? It, I mean, it's partially true. You, you'd never build a 30-story tower at the base of a ski hill. It just wouldn't make sense. It's sort of like if you've ever been to 
Vegas and you see the demand, it's a very tight environment, but they go vertical because there's so many millions of people coming. In terms of the environment, absolutely, we looked for inspiration around the world at these villages. It was a village model. Toronto, and again, the secret of Toronto, for those that don't know it, is it's an incredible city of neighborhoods. So it's not all tall, it's that density has been pushed into different areas. Immigration policy brings in hundreds of thousands of people a year. They need to live somewhere. They start sort of in the periphery and then they move their way in. Second, third generation immigrants are are Canadians. We're all Canadians, but are now looking for that urban feel. And the condo has been the flavor of the last three decades, let's say. But the idea of Interwest was it's great. They're going to sleep upstairs, but where are they going to spend their time and money? And retail and mixed use development and place fundamentally surrounds around the environment that you're in. And if you don't create an environment to allow people to enjoy it, and from a developer's perspective, where you can actually make money because you're building these things because that's the business that you're in, if you can't have an environment to allow people to spend time and money, what are they going to do? So it would be strange to do these villages that are all high density. I actually think a lot of what's going on in Toronto right now is, is the right idea, but the wrong articulation. So it's like a kit of parts. You know, the term mixed use 20 years ago wasn't a term. It was single use, then it was multi-use, and then now mixed use. And the, the approval bodies would say, okay, it's mixed use, it's good. But if you really think about it, when I moved to Toronto, I lived in a building, and I won't name the developer or who it was, <laughs> but I still remember moving from Montreal. I was moving, moved into a brand new condo in downtown Toronto, and I said, oh, I've got some dry cleaning. I went to the front desk. How do I get into the dry cleaners? They're like, you go out that front door, you walk around the corner. And I'm like, but isn't that retailer in this building? They're yeah. like, yeah. And the same thing for the restaurant and the same thing for the new burrito shop that happened. So people were thinking about multi-use or single use and just jamming it together. Mm -hmm. Yet the value of these assets, the long-term value of these assets is determined as to how you think about it. And I find that people move so fast in this city and think about the development and think the value is upstairs, which it is, but you realize how painful the value is downstairs if you don't give a little bit of time and effort into making sure it works. I think we've talked on this podcast a million times about we would have a much, the development industry have a much easier time getting things approved if they spent a lot more time on how the building meets the, meets the ground, right? And 100%. getting the right mix of tenants in there that's not just, you know. Rexall. <laughs> Rexall. Which I, you know, Rexall's Subway, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Shoppers Drug Mart. Dentist shop. All the banks, which someone made a good comment that we still have a lot of banks, yet most people almost do all their banking online. Yeah. My, my line is always, I'm like, that's right. My line's always been the, and no, no disrespect to the nationals because they have their place, but the Kelsey's Casey's Boston pizza is not something that I'm dying to go to. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have its place within our economy. Same time. I love home Depot. I don't want (laughs) to live on top of a home Depot (laughs) yet in Vancouver, someone does. And so you start to ask yourself, what is it that we're really doing and what are we really valuing? And especially in the time of the market that we're in right now, I think a lot lot more attention finally is going to have to be forced as to what happens on that ground floor plane, the ground floor 50 feet up that I always talk about. Because if you don't, the approvals may be a little bit more difficult and the demand for whatever is going to come back when our market stabilizes, and it will, because we were living in a great real estate market that is the greater Toronto area, but people are going to vote with their feet if it's not a great experience because 
30 years ago when, you know, I'll, I'll leave you out of the, out of this, but Ben and I may have been a little <laughs> bit younger. We would look at a project. Maybe there was an ad in the paper. We drive to a sales center to take a look at a building today. It's in your hand. Where do I want to live? What's the experience? Where am I going? And it's not to say that each condo or each development doesn't have its own unique flavor, but you can go anywhere you want. And so the customer has a lot more choice today and they are attuned to, can I go downstairs and have a cup of coffee at somewhere I actually would enjoy? Or if I have to go out of my building, where am I going to go? But God forbid I'd have to walk outside that building in 2023 and walk around the corner in minus 10 degree weather in January to drop off my dry cleaning for shame. You guys should put a little more effort into it. And it's not about a lot of effort, just a little bit of effort. Yeah. And that's why I think people like uh, living that one freed project, the, uh, the Thompson, right? Like I just, if I'm not single, but if I was single, the, the, the idea of being in my unit and coming down just going to the bar, having a drink and you got, you know, a collection of people there and it's just, that's just a great experience, right? Instead of having to leave the building and go somewhere else to experience that type of thing. And like even a project like the Waverly, which yeah. is a new rental building by Fitzrovia, they have just a great like lobby space and so much things. Inc- it just has just so much better experience to come home to, to have all that stuff as opposed to just this tiny little lobby with a couple lock boxes and now a virtual uh, front desk agent. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's, you know, you talk about placemaking, but it's really just places for people because it doesn't only rely on the retail. It relies on the human behavior. How is it easy for me to live in a condo that is smaller than, you know, a larger unit that 10 years ago would have cost the same or to live in a townhouse or to go and live further north? The, you know, COVID, the pandemic, everyone decided they wanted to go all live out of the city and be free. Well, (laughs) the world has come back and people aren't that happy living in the middle of nowhere Mm. for space. So it really is a combination of not just the space that you're sleeping in or living in, it's the space that you are a part of. And that's the building, that's the neighborhood, that's the community. And it's really interesting. The more these developments come to pass, we do have a serious housing shortage. There's no doubt. But I think that it's not going to be left uh, to the untrained ear or eye that, oh yeah, I need a unit, so I have to live here. That's not the way the world works. People are going to choose where they want to live. And if two buildings side by side are offering virtually the same kind of living quarters upstairs, but downstairs is completely different, I have a feeling that the building on the left side is going to lease up or sell up much quicker than the one on the right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think this is one of the more positive trends in urban planning is that we're seeing a lot more of these mixed use kind of larger communities. There was a time I live in, a, in an apartment neighborhood, kind of like Tower in the Park type neighborhood where anything other than small scale retail is actually forbidden in the official plan. So it's not even it's not just that the developers have bad placemaking instincts. They're just not allowed to put the sort of um, like commercial amenities that that tenants would want. So I, I think this is very positive. And maybe you could talk maybe a little bit more about these principles of placemaking, let's say for, for like some amount of the audience, this might be new. You talked about ground floor to 50 feet up. What are the, the, the key principles that they think go into yeah. making great places? It's a great question. And it's not that it's the developers, right? Because in the towers in the park model, it was, you know, it can only be this type of retail. Well, today the pendulum has swung so far that everything on the ground must be active. Therefore it must be retail. Right. Well, retail can't be everywhere. I, I always use the example of the Flintstones because I grew up watching the Flintstones. And if you watched Barney and Fred, in their car where they were pushing their feet to ride, you would look at the background. And I just saw this on TV recently, a commercial. If you see the backdrop that Hanna-Barbera would do, you would see house, palm tree, dinosaur. 
And you're like, oh, that's cool. But it keeps repeating itself and repeating itself. So you can't fill every space in every building with the best. The there there can't be everywhere. So it just doesn't work. So the principles of place actually may not just relate to retail, but it's the environment that you're in. So it starts with the site. It starts with the location. Being complementary to what exists Mm -hmm. is sometimes better than being competitive. Oh, they have a grocery store. I should have one too. No, they have a grocery store. So my customers can use their iPhone and order their groceries across the street or walk downstairs to get a home meal replacement experience. But what else is missing? So it's about understanding the customer beyond the principles of design. and, And I love the urban planners of the world. We spend a lot of time thinking about urban planning, but we're more development oriented. And we think a lot about what makes the business work, the business of retail, the business of place. So understanding who the customers are, who are those individuals, and we call them end users, who are going to spend time and money. And what are they looking for when and where? It's not just the customers upstairs that may live in the the mixed-use development, the high-rise, the condo, the mid-rise. It's the neighborhood. What does the neighborhood need? And it's an opportunity for developers to say, I can get that. So I love the pharmacy, the LCBO, the bank, the grocery store as the, the traditionals. I don't love some of the other national tenants that are just everywhere here today, gone tomorrow. But there are some great businesses that, you know, in the projects we work in that could do really well. Uh, and the independents have proven on a case by case basis that they can outperform the nationals if they're in the right location at the right time. So everyone loves a bakery. Bonjour Brioche is a great East side bakery. Yeah. They've chosen that that's their location. That's their size. Does that mean that could be the only bakery that exists in Toronto? Absolutely not. But it's easy sometimes as a developer to take the thing that is right in front of you as opposed to being courageous. And there are some developers in this city that have been very courageous, uh, like the Canary District and the Pan Am Games Athletes Village development that was done by Dream and Kilmer. I had the privilege of working on that project with them, and we took some risks to actually bring in not just the nationals, but some of the independents. And it's really cool to see that happen because then you ask yourself, well, what could happen? Because if you look at the pro forma, the math on the retail is negligible as compared to what's upstairs. The risk is not negligible if you don't fill that space because you have carrying costs, you know, operating costs, cams and additional rent and taxes. And your listeners, I'm sure are familiar with that. So if you have 10,000 square feet, that's vacant at 18 to $30 a foot, that's a problem. So then you end up saying, okay, what can I put in here to pay the rent? But the rent relative to the sales of the condo or the renting of the units is negligible, but the experience of it being vacant is actually dramatic. So it's a math experience of how you can actually do it. And it just takes a little bit of effort because I think Toronto Uh, If you want to go find some of the best retail in Canada, go look around the greater Toronto area. Go look in the municipalities that surround it. Brampton, Mississauga, Scarborough, Vaughan, Richmond Hill, Thornhill, uh, Pickering, Oshawa. Like There's so much interesting things that are going on. It's not just downtown Toronto, King West, Queen West, or even the beaches or the east side. Like There are creative people who are doing great things. You don't need to go to Manhattan to convince someone or Montreal to come open, open in Toronto. I love when things come from Montreal, but 
you know, it's proven that they have not been extremely successful because the people who spend the time and money that live in different cities or neighborhoods are different. So ignoring that is a fundamental flaw when it comes to retail. You may have buyers that are investors upstairs, but the retail is very finicky and you cannot lie to retail because it really comes down to sales and customers. Yeah. So maybe tell us a little bit about how this kind of depth of knowledge and experience led to the creation of your own firm. What, what gap in the market did you identify? I guess people just weren't doing this well enough. So tell us a little bit about the founding of the company and, and what you could yeah, do. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, you know, and that's probably where I can touch on some of these principles because yeah. that's fundamentally how I got, I got started. I learned a lot of things growing up in Montreal and I didn't even realize what I learned. I then learned a lot working for this company called IntraWest, which at the time was taking all kinds of risks and developing things in the middle of nowhere with great success. And the retail is not easy to do. So if you can't do it, you know, in downtown Toronto, you'd have an even harder time doing it in Collingwood or Blue Mountain for that matter. So I learned a lot and I decided that ultimately the Spanier group needed to implement. It couldn't just be an organization that wrote a report. And the reports are valuable. And I've worked with Ben on some (laughs) of those reports that are just necessary for financing, for market outlook. But when it came to these projects, if I told them in a 50-page report, the developer, you know, here's the answer, they're so busy. But if you can get it around the table, roll up your sleeves, and actually decide with the team what's going to work because I may want to have a coffee shop, but the back of house may not allow for that or a grocery store. A grocery store needs 35,000 square feet for a traditional grocery store at a minimum. Uh, Shoppers Drug Mart, 16,000 square feet. Pharma Plus, 10,000 square feet and have certain requirements. An LCBO requires a certain level of um, structure because the pallets are so heavy for the alcohol. So you have to reinforce that. So that's fine. But it's like, how do you actually make the project really hum? And so the Spaniard group decided instead of just being a company that writes reports, because you don't often need the report that Ben, Ben has a report that is required for financing in his business. And obviously we're doing the, the podcast, Ben, not the report writing, Ben, <laughs> but the Spaniard group, you don't need a retail report always, but what you do need is a project that can get approved and entitled. And so a lot of our work is not just figuring out the physical component. It's working through the approvals process with the teams, whether it's developers, whether it's the planners that are going through the approval entitlement process. Sometimes we're getting involved in macro uh, deal making, uh, infrastructure deals, working with government at the provincial or the federal level of infrastructure funding that, that is needed. Affordable housing is a huge consideration right now. How does that fit into the overall plan? Mm-hmm. Education, non-retail uh, innovation districts. We're working on an amazing project in Mississauga called Lakeview Village. That's an incredible mixed-use development on the waterfront in Mississauga. There's 1.8 million square feet of innovation space attached to the development. So instead of going to the 401 to go to your innovation or office space, it's actually integrated into a community. So if you work at uh, a big tech company and you want to go for a walk on the water, you can. You want to have a bite to eat in the village, you can. So the Spaniard group was really about getting involved to help provide the development expertise of mixed use. I do believe long-term, as we continue to evolve, many of these developers will have that that expertise in house, and some already do. But architects aren't trained to know how big a uh, how big is the Italian restaurant and where should it go. Right, they're not. <laughs> right. That's not yeah. their job to make yeah. the building function. They're thinking about so many things. So if you could just give them the answer, 
But the answer is not just about a cool idea, a, a tenant mix. It's actually understanding the customer base and how much retail is appropriate as opposed to having a ton of vacancy and who's going to shop here, or who's going to eat here, or who's going to drink here. Like your comment, Ben, about uh, the Freed Project, that project attracted a certain type of customer, a buyer. It's fantastic. It's in the downtown King West neighborhood. Yeah. It's aligned with a hotel brand. There are restaurants and nightclub, you know, a nightclub there. Fantastic. Who wants to be a part of that? Who should we be looking at? Yeah. But let's make sure that if you, if that project was in uh, Oshawa, do you think the bar would do well? <laughs> How no. would the nightclub do? How would the restaurant do? It certainly wouldn't do as well. And that's why you see more of the traditional hotel that sits out on the highway there. Unless it was a country bar. Could be. <laughs> Could, be. <laughs> Could be. But that's, I mean, and so the Spaniard group gets involved there, but yeah. it sometimes we're misunderstood for where do you put the Starbucks? I can tell you where to put the Starbucks. Sure. But if you want to have a great project that is economically feasible, approvable, and one of the coolest places, which is what people are looking to do to create a great place, that's where we get involved. And our, our team gets involved in projects at scale. Uh, we're working on a monthly basis, 12 to 14 projects. Yeah. And we have some really incredible clients that we have the privilege to work with that are looking to change the game and develop great projects. Their primary focus still may be the residential. Our job is to make sure that they have no issues on the ground floor. So awesome. Well, let me let me read. I'm going to read a couple definitions because placemaking is not something that's probably well defined. And even when I went looking for it, there was like multiple definitions. So I'm going to read four of them here. So, <laughs> so placemaking capitalizes on local communities' assets, inspiration, and potential with the intention of creating public spaces that improve urban vit vitality and promote people's health, happiness, and well-being. So that's the first one. Okay. Second one, placemaking is the intentional use of land, community, and amenities to create great places to live. Okay, the third one, placemaking is a participatory process for shaping public space that harnesses the ideas and assets of the people who use it. And the last one is rooted in community-based participation. Placemaking involves the planning, design, management, and programming of shared use spaces. So that's, uh, I mean, obviously there's a wide, a wide range of things. What, yeah. what, what, how do you, how would you define it or, or yeah. how do you think about placemaking as a, as a, as a, Overall concept. It's not a multiple choice exam. I can no, just choose not, yeah, a, B, C, no, or D. No right answer. I have here. a choice, but I, <laughs> I can tell you. To me, and it's funny because the word placemaking, like the word mixed use, will be has been adopted. I think it's eventually going to become misused and misunderstood. And just by virtue of those definitions, I think it's all over the map. A yeah. lot of people think it's an arts and cultural thing. I think it's a development thing. And right. I, I actually spend more time and probably over the next year will modify our website to just say place because it's about places. It's not about place making. Making, pl making places is what you're trying to do. So that second definition of looking at the land and looking at the environment, I think is critical because not, you know, is Vegas a place for sure is, are the beaches a place? Sure. Is, um, central park in Manhattan a place? Yeah. Is Cedarvale park near where I live a place. Absolutely. So the idea of a place and then trying to put a definition on development is tough. And, you know, retail is the same thing. I, if you can give me another word to catch all for the word retail, because when you, I say retail, most people think of a coffee shop or a shop Well, and commercial is really an office, but what is retail restaurants, services, civic, cultural, educational, institutional, public realm? Well, that's a place. And 
I think that place is the congregation or the confluence of a whole series of uses that are very specific to a project, to an environment that will make that place succeed. It's a harder thing to de- define because if you thought about a, you know, that development that has the penguin out front, the smart centers development, that is a replicable model on the basis of a large anchor that is traditionally Walmart with other sub anchors. But even Mitch is developing the Vaughn Metropolitan Center in the downtown and hired one of the greatest architects, Claude Cormier, to create one of the greatest parks to create an environment. So is the Vaughn Metropolitan Center or downtown Vaughn, as I call it, going to be a place one day? For sure. So a place is a bunch of components that you put together, but it only, the challenge in real estate is give me the definition, tell me how it is, let me apply it. We're doing placemaking. Artscape, sadly, who has fallen on hard times now um, due to COVID and a whole bunch of other reasons, had a whole division called placemaking, but the way in which they did placemaking is very different than the way I look at placemaking because I think placemaking is making the place succeed because I believe that these developers that we work with and, and cities and other, other players understand what needs to go upstairs. I don't think the toilet paper on the left side of the toilet or the right side of the toilet is going to make the difference. I do <laughs> believe the ground floor 50 feet up will, right. period, end of story. Do you want to buy a 440-unit condo? Maybe, maybe not. That could be the decision maker for what goes on upstairs. Can you finance a three-bedroom condo in today's marketplace? Maybe, maybe not. But do people all want to have a bite to eat? Yeah. Whether it's a high end or a low end, you can debate that all day long of what the customer is for what they're looking for and the preference. That's a sub level. But place and the creation of place is an understanding that people everywhere are demanding an experience. So you mentioned Blue Mountain where you got married. One of the greatest moments of my life going back to Blue Mountain was with my kids And my kids are a little older now, but they were younger. We went up for a weekend, not as Rob Spanier, who worked for Intro West, but as Rob Spanier with his wife and two kids as a customer. And I could see all of the things that worked and all the things that didn't work. But the the greatest thing I saw was one afternoon when we went to get some ice cream at the ice cream shop and someone was playing music, you know, in the little band shell sort of stage area. And there were all walks of life hanging out there. And that was the intention. The development was a place for everyone because at the time, Muskoka had this sort of, I don't know how to say it, but like there's no, it's not a gated community, but it's not necessarily welcoming to everyone because there's not a lot of places for people to stay. People own houses there. Airbnb has changed a little bit of that, but like Collingwood and Blue was a place for everyone to come. Anybody can eat here. Everybody can come hang out here. You could stay at a hotel and it just, you could see that that moment had happened Whether you want to be a part of that or not is not up to me. My job was to create the environment for people to enjoy. And I think that the business side of placemaking is what's going to define the future of this important word, not just the idea of, wow, I put some flags up. It's a place. Planters, BIAs love to do the planters and the flags and stuff. I think it's great, (laughs) but that's not... Yeah, it's a form of placemaking, but real placemaking is the ability to take something from nothing and create an environment like those resorts that we talked about or like the communities and the developments I work on to say, wow, I've come here. It didn't exist because the villages of Europe and the towns and the cities that have existed for thousands of years and hundreds of years in Canada, like Toronto is an incredible place to visit. 
Um, but I just wish people would share the things that make Toronto so special to them. It's not just about, you know, going to, to see the Raptors play or the Blue Jays play. Go walk around a neighborhood in Toronto and it'll blow your mind. So I'm very involved in the Urban Land Institute. I have been for many years. It's one of the largest real estate organizations in the world and was involved in Toronto. And so in this spring, this past spring in May of 2023, we hosted the ULI spring meeting where people come from around the world to go to sessions at the convention center and do tours. I have a group called the Placemaking Product Council, which are people who are in the, in the I guess I would call it in the placemaking arena, whether they're developers, financiers, public sector employees, consultants, and we all get together twice a year. Instead of going to a restaurant, and there are so many cool restaurants in Toronto, where did I bring people for our dinner the night before the day? To my house. Mm-hmm. I hosted them at my house. Because if I go to a city and I really want to understand what makes it tick, I'd love to see a neighborhood. And they've said that it was one of the greatest experiences that they've had to date. Was the food great? No, it was okay. I mean, we hired a caterer to do it because we had that budget that was set up. But it wasn't the food. It was the experience. It was not sitting at a table that was, you know, had 30 people that you only talked to four. It was walking around. It was meeting my kids. It was understanding the ravine system of Toronto or the neighborhood and how it works. And to me, that's also place, but it's so important. And how people feel. And this is a really important point in what we're talking about today. You can buy a condo, you have money, you don't have money, you finance it. But how you feel when you're in a place is so different than what you can afford because you don't have to have a lot of money to be able to enjoy a great place. And the greatest places in the world are actually places where you don't have to spend any money at all. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I love, it's, it's funny when I think about I can't talk about what makes places special to me. Right? I just, I, and I, and the same thing about architecture. I can't look up and say, oh, the spandrel this and then that and the color. You know, I'm just like, I like the way that building looks. Right. And so I think to myself, where do I go when I have a choice to go? I go to Corktown Common. I go to Ossington. I go to Queen West. I go to the Junction. Right. And like, what is it about these places that, that, you know, makes me want to go there. Right. And then I also feel bad because so few of those areas have new development and that's the business that I'm in. Like, does new development make these places worse? Right. I think is, is all these tall towers, is it making young street worse or is it making young street better? Right. And the question you just need to ask yourself is, as you walk from, let's say, I don't know, pick a midpoint Bloor street all the way down to Wellington street, What do you feel like on the ground floor 50 feet up? Because at the end of the day, I do agree that sometimes the height of a building can impact the experience that you have. But if the experience on the ground floor is that much better, I don't think you really notice it. Right. And I think that that is the thing that's so funny. And that's an economic decision. That is a development decision. It is we're about to get involved in the project, you know, around the Young and Bloor area. And there's not that much retail, but it's about how does this building function? Because they know what they're doing on the condo side. They don't need us. They're experts. One of the best developers in the greater Toronto area. But the ground floor, let's get it right. And it's not getting it right so you can sell condos. It's getting it right so that for the next 20 years, you have predictive cash flow. You have the right tenant in place. You don't have to worry about releasing. You don't have to deal with vacancy. And again, the challenge with our market over the last 20 years has been the majority of real estate that we both know has been sales of units. Mm -hmm. And so the developer leaves once they've sold out the building. But that retail is still the, the, the afterthought and a challenge if not done right. 
well, that's going to change because I think we're going to get a lot more rental in the next <laughs> five years. Well, we had, you know, something like 8,500 starts already this year for, for rental. And, and like I said, I'm, uh, I don't think I mentioned to you guys, but I'm already starting to do rental studies on condo projects that have already launched. That's great. Right. That's so, great. It's, well, it's not great that those projects are failing. It's not great that the project <laughs> failed, but it's but, great that finally, because 10 years ago, people start talking about rental and then the numbers didn't work uh, because the land was too expensive and the best way to get the exit was on the condo. But yeah. now that things are shifting, there is hope. So some of these developers that maybe have having had a challenge actually can make it back without actually having to walk away. Yeah. And I think, I think, I mean, obviously I would do a lot of work on the condo side, but I think the rental buildings, there's much more incentive to do better work at grade, right? Because they have to keep releasing those units, right? So it makes sense if they have to keep reselling those units, essentially, then that the at grade experience, the the way people feel about the community makes a much bigger difference than someone buying a pre-construction condo yeah. four years before it occupies. Well, I'll give right? you an example that's not a condo or an apartment because these are the people that have to think about their ground floor, hotels. Hotels are a revolving door by virtue of their business model. They want people to stay in the room and then they vacate the room and someone else comes in. It's not about a long-term rental. It's about a hotel. Yeah. So they have amenities. 30, 40 years ago, the whole model was bring them in, make them feel like they're at home. There's a bar, there may be a courtyard, a fountain, etc. Fast forward to today. If that hotel doesn't form part of the street fabric and that retailer and that restaurant, whether it's third party or their own, doesn't have an opportunity to gain more traffic, are they going to survive? Because how many people do you need to make one of these retailers work, the restaurant work? So the Kimpton Hotel is always one of my favorite brands from the United States, eventually got acquired by Intercontinental. And I think Intercontinental got acquired by Marriott. They're all acquiring each other. But they understood that a great hotel experience didn't have to be high, high end. It needed to be above the mark. But the if you had an incredible restaurant or bar in that hotel and actually allowed people to come in here, that's, that's what the locals want. They want to live the neighborhood. They want to live that vibe. So as a condo owner, buyer, renter, I kind of want to make sure that my value of my property is going to hold up. You got to figure out who the right developer is. Are they going to deliver on that promise or the pro is the product going to be great, but will it have good resale value because it, it really is a commoditized asset in our city and in our region. And so what's the difference maker? I, I my, my argument could be what your ground floor experience is, what your amenities are, and the environment that you're creating for these people could do go a long way. So if you are flipping to, let's say, from condo to rental, yeah, you better think about the amenities and you certainly better think about that retail. Yeah. Yeah. So um, development, of course, involves a lot of public consultation, a lot of public meetings, a lot of participation, and even some of the definitions that Ben wrote really emphasize the participatory approach. I wonder, how do you balance that with like a more vision-driven approach where I'm reminded of this Henry Ford quote where he said, if I asked people what they wanted, it would have been a faster horse, right? Or something like that. <laughs> so so how, how, do you, how do you balance these two things? Like what does the community want versus 
what do they not know that they really want? And what do you kind of like draw out from, from a vision that you might have or the experience that you might have in, in plugging into these projects? Yeah. So I've always believed in public consultation and, and getting a real sense of the local community today and tomorrow. So it's not just the people who've lived around the corner for 50 years. It's who lives in the area, who might be interested to move here. What are people looking for within an area, a region, et cetera? Because I think that sometimes engagement is really the seven same people that come to the same right. public meeting over and over again <laughs> yeah. that aren't happy with development. But I think that that's really key. And I think being genuine with getting that feedback, I've learned always on every project, one or two things from the community to make the place better. But I also believe in empirical substantiation. So a lot of the work that we do tries to substantiate the program. How much of what should we be building? What types of uses? Who are those end users? Where are they coming from? But I'll give you a perfect example and I will leave the, the city, the municipality, the mayor, everyone out of it. But we had done a project that is go was going through the approvals process. And this was late December and I get a call from the client and they say, you know, uh, the mayor called us and they want a grocery store. Well, this project is located in a tertiary location. Mm -hmm. uh, to break that down for your listeners, sometimes when retailers look at spaces or active spaces, the primary is like the most visible. The secondary may be just a little bit further inside. When you're on a dead end street, you know, at the end of a road where there's a ton of retail in the area, you're not the one. And because some community member said to that mayor, I want a grocery store, well, I would love also many things. <laughs> uh, ben, you like to play basketball. I played basketball in high school. I'm a lot shorter than you. I would love to have played in the NBA. It ain't happening. Um, but that wasn't happening either. But that's not good enough. Right. So what did I do? Let's let's prove it. Speaking to the four major grocers, I said, and, and know them all, I said, I know what the answer is going to be, but it doesn't matter that I know it. You need to tell me. And I said, here's the project. And we got a response from four of them in writing. Love the project. Love the stuff that you're doing for the following reasons. We are, cannot do this here. Right. There's not enough visibility. There's not enough traffic. There's not enough space. And there's not enough demand. And by the way, there are three grocery stores within uh, 100, 150 meters of here. Right. So it's not that we don't want to listen to the community. Sometimes you have to understand that these things already exist and you can't just duplicate them. And the biggest mistake that I see is that just because there's another project on the street doesn't mean that you're going to have the same things. If you understand the opportunity cost of saying, well, there's an LCBO there, we want the LCBO. You can buy an LCBO deal. You can wait for an LCBO deal, but you can also understand that they've spent a lot of time and money in that project putting in an LCBO. So what else can you do? Can you do something else? So I think community engagement is critical, but then there's also substantiating what you're hearing right. and validating with it with what the market needs right. and trying to balance that out. And it's not always easy, but sometimes there are real wins, like thinking about where you're placing the retail in a project. I remember I learned this from a community members in a waterfront development project, Lakeview, where we had the village and the water is very rough in Mississauga and the wind can be pretty tough. And the village or the square was actually not on the water. And we called it a waterfront square. And one of the community members said, you know, you're building this waterfront square, but it's not even on the water. And they were so right. Like they were right. <laughs> and we shifted it down so that while you had the public realm, you'd walk right into that retail. And good for them because... It's not about being closed-minded, but it's about listening and understanding what those needs are. But don't 
only think that the ideas come just from what you're hearing from the community. You have to balance that out. Sure. So we just, uh, the last podcast that we did, we talked a lot about, you know, the risk averseness of developers, right? And how it's such a risky business and they're just going to look, okay, well, Joe Schmo, he did a coffee shop and he did, uh, you know, 3,800 square feet of retail. I've got a similar building. Okay, what did he do for, okay, nine foot ceilings, granite countertops, uh, laminate flooring, uh, floor ceiling windows, used Chaconi Simone, boom, 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 boom. I'm gonna do all the same things. So you must <laughs> get the hugest amount of pushback from some of your clients, but or are they, or are your clients self-selecting because they want to do something different? Or are you still getting a lot of pushback saying, Rob, I can't, you know, I can't believe you're suggesting that. That's not what Green Park did. That's not what Manami did. That's not what Centercore did. I think they were very successful. Listen, and I think, I think there's a lot of that and, and imitation is, is the, what it's a serious form of flattery mm-hmm. in certain degree. And I think as a market, a lot of people look at what others are doing. I think a lot of people are looking at it saying, how do I solve for this? So we're involved in a project right now in the Toronto York area. It's a very simple thing. There's a great architect working on the project, but the retail made no sense on the ground floor. This wasn't a large scale mixed use development. It's just a good friend of mine that's doing a project. So what did I do? Fundamentally, where's the fire escape and can you move it? Can we maximize the footprint of the retail? Where is the fire escape? Where is the elevator to go upstairs to the second floor for the office space? Cause they need to deliver some office space and are thinking about a daycare. Instead of having two elevators, can't you share that elevator, get up to the second floor and have a door to come into the daycare with a fire escape next to it? How does the back of house work? How does garbage work? Where's the type G loading? How do you maximize the space instead of having seven 2,000 uh, square foot spaces, can you have one 14,000 square foot space or come pretty close? Because the devil's in the details of long term. I never like seeing this space all chopped up and cut up. So at the end of the day, you may not like it as a developer. This is how they did it. Let's fix your building so that you maximize it. I don't care if you put a national tenant in there. I kind of do care, but it's not my, it's not my money. <laughs> yeah. But I want to make sure the space works for you today and in 20 years from now. And again, the the difference between leasing to a national tenant and an independent sometimes isn't that much. I'm not talking about the A of A guys. You get a national tenant that's not the top grocery pharmacy LCBO bank. You get someone else, but they're a national covenant. I know. Well, would you have rather put in a Subway sandwich store for $30, $20 versus this great little boutique that probably can pay the same amount that people are going to want. I'm not talking about $20 versus $100. You have to look at math. And the closer you get down to that Toronto financial district, the more expensive it gets or in the mall context. But it's about making the right decision so that you can make that decision for yourself as opposed to saying, I've only got a thousand square feet. It's all chopped up seven times. I don't have a choice. Make the choice of spending time to figure out your space and then make the decision. Don't be forced to make a decision you're going to be unhappy with. Well, it's an interesting point about chopping up space because we also hear this 
kind of refrain, at least in the media and maybe among some people that, that kind of get into urban issues, um, that we're losing a lot of our fine grain retail. We're replacing maybe like 120 f- foot of frontage, which would have had six shops before with one big shop and a lobby. So how, how do you think about that, that balance again? Is this one of those things that people say they want, but they don't actually like shop there. They just like to see it and, and really it's the larger retailers and the larger retail spaces that do better. Or I, I think it's the way Ben phrased it, that developers look at other developers and try to determine what success is and try to replicate that success. However, that has a, that can only go so far because by virtue of the national tenant that you wanted, if it's on the corner, if there's four corners and that person has it as much as you want it, you can't do it. You can compete with it and do, you know, there are multiple banks. There's five banks that you could choose from. There's four or five grocery stores you could choose from on the traditional side. I think what it is, is having that space. You may decide to put the big player in, but you could still chop that space up if you had the right independence and the right individuals. So at the Canary District, we had options. We cut up space to create a great experience. We drove that project on the basis of an understanding, and this was at my previous company, to create the right environment to put the right people in place. Or my brother-in-law, who's a developer, uh, the Rockport Group. I don't know if you're familiar with those Mm -hmm, guys. Uh, If you've been to Stock TC. Yeah. I love it. Stock TC was an idea that came to reality by Rockport understanding of putting the right people in the right place to do the right thing at the right time, because it was a 20,000 square foot building on four floors, P1, ground, second, and third. But having had the privilege to work with them on that opportunity brought together, I would say, one of the greatest restaurant grossateria experiences that exists in the city. And early on when we were working on this, a big fear was that Italy yeah. at Bloor Street, you know, was too close. Or Taroni, their own business was at Young and Price. Young and Eglinton is one of the most explosive residential and commercial markets in our core that is totally underserviced. And you could see that the servicing was coming in. And when I say servicing, I mean food, other experiences. And there's some pretty historic uses that have been around for a long time. But what are people looking for today? And it's an incredible, they hit the mark. They did an incredible job. And that building is a rental building, right? Mm -hmm. It's a rental apartment building. And they took a big risk at getting into the rental long before others were jumping on the bandwagon. And that experience, I think, drove you know, testament to Rockport and Jack Winberg and Daniel Winberg and their whole team. Yeah. Fantastic. But I really, it was, it was an honor to be involved in that project um, to create a great experience that will last a very long time. And it's not about, well, how long is the lease? It's how long can that operator be successful? And if you right. get the right operator who, you know, ca- cause, yeah. cause Mamaliti is not a national tenant. He's a local regional player and has all sorts of businesses and has other exposure in other parts of the United States. But you know what? He's unbelievable at what he does. Yeah. And he's been around a long time and that's a good bet to make. Yeah. No, that's a great example. I mean, I, I drive, I live in Hyde Park and I go regularly to Young and Eglinton just for stock TC. And I was thinking Manulife Center with Italy is another great example of you have kind of like the homes above, but it's a, it's a place and it's a destination for, for people even who don't live there. But to your point, Ben, everyone sees stock and they're like, oh, we got to do a stock and we got to do a stock. Well, you can't have all the stocks. <laughs> right, it's, yeah. it's the same thing over and over. The question is, is what does that market need? Right. Where do you, you know, Summerhill Marketplace is a great business as well. Um, started in the Rosedale area. Then they opened up, they have one on Eglinton now. Uh, they have one at Bathurst and DuPont. Davenport or DuPont, right in that area. 
Um, Davenport. But like <laughs> it's grown. It's not a huge business. So the point is, well, we only need national tenants. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. As the project gets larger, it's harder to find all of those players. So we're all, we keep talking about a condo. Now let's talk large scale mixed use development. Let's talk about how much retail you need to put there. What type of retail, what type of restaurants, services, civic, cultural, what type of amenity space are you going to put on the ground floor of your building to cheat the experience of active street life? COVID taught me more about how people behave and interact uh, more than probably living in Montreal because everybody was so, you know, confined. Well, if I were living in a condo building and my unit was really small, I would much rather have a great office space to do a touchdown and work on a Zoom with great high-speed internet than I would having a pool table. Or, you know, a games room. So on the ground floor, if you see a whole bunch of people working together or separately having meetings in a condo building, that's a huge value add. Why do they put that on the seventh floor? If I have to have a meeting with you, Ben, and you're living in a condo building and there is 2,000 square feet dedicated to workspace with a boardroom, et cetera, yeah, come to this address. I'll see you at, at, you know, I'll open the door for you. I don't need to go through security, clear security, go up an elevator, clear some more security to go to a meeting. So you got to think differently. And I think it's critical. Yeah. The uh, live work is definitely the must have amenity in any condo project. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. A, a, Cheaper a, than a, a pool. Rentable, <laughs> uh, you know, boardroom and, uh, you know, the silent spaces and good Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah all definitely, the definitely have the, yeah. the good, good Wi-Fi, but, uh, I don't know where we want to go next. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, these great neighborhoods, but creating a neighborhood from scratch has got to be the most difficult. I mean, obviously you said you work with smart centers in the Vaughn Metropolitan Center or downtown Vaughn or whatever they're calling it now and uh, and West Don Lands, which I, I still think is one of the biggest policy failures, right? We have all these eight and seven story buildings in an area where it's right so close to downtown. I mean, they didn't all have to be tall buildings, but the fact that so many of them are short buildings and you, yeah, there's some great retailers in there, but still, I go go there on a weekend. I'm like, ah, still not enough people d- spending still, time and money. Still I agree. Kind of dead down here, yep. right? You know, and I think to myself, man, like this in a housing shortage. Like, why are we not building? I turn around and I see this urban capital, this fantastic building, and then I look at the other buildings. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, it's not even as not even as good as Regent Park. Right. You know, in terms of the art, you know, the architecture. Right. Well, the nice thing is I've stayed away from the things that, you know, architecture is, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right. <laughs> I really, really believe that. But if you want to talk to me about place, if you've created a place in a mud patch in the mountains in the middle of nowhere and made it successful, it's not so hard to do it here. The question is, what are you focused on? And so you're, to your point of like, it's, it shouldn't be that hard. You should just focus. And I agree, there are policy changes that will make things easier. The way in which I think about large-scale development, instead of saying, okay, what's the policy? What can we do? What should this be? Let's go change the policy. Right. And that's a bit of a controversial statement because people will be like, well, the policy was set up in such a way. When you want to create <laughs> a great place, 
And you know that this is going to live for the next hundred years. These are not projects that you're going to, this isn't a, a Walmart, you're going to knock down in 20, 25 years. Literally speaking, these are hundred year projects, if not forever projects. And if you screw that up, you've screwed it up forever. Yeah. So the thing that I take so seriously, uh, you know, personally, professionally is you've got one chance to get it right. And what you do, it doesn't mean, oh, we've chosen the best coffee shop. It's going to be the best. Coffee shop may come or go. But how you design that ground floor experience will never change. And that's the thing that blows my mind because people are moving so fast. The market's moving so fast. At, at the time when things are working really well, we got to go, go, go. Sometimes you just need to slow down to speed up. Because if you take five minutes or you take two months you know, the projects are still working through a whole bunch of issues. Nothing stops you from thinking about how to make that ground floor work. How does the back of house work? Garbage, delivery, storage. How do you make the corridors work? How do you make the retail work? Rotating a fire escape today on plan by 90 degrees makes all of the difference. Like I had this conversation with another client. Well, we think that this space should be this and that should be that. I said, great. But why can't we move that fire escape? Because if you're wrong, then you're definitely going to have to live with that forever. So why not have a space that's X square feet be twice the size? So if you're right or you're wrong, you can play with it over time. The, the funny thing is we spend so much time thinking about the market, thinking about the economics, thinking about the buyer. This thing stays forever. A condo buyer isn't a forever thing. It's a buy and then it's a sell. The developer worries about selling out in order to construct. Then, you know, all things being equal and hopefully the market forces allow them that they've sold at the right price and construction is at the right price and they're going to go vertical and get their money out. It's not an easy thing to be a developer. I think sometimes people don't appreciate that. But this asset, they may choose to hold it forever. So you better actually get it right because it's the thing that's going to haunt you way down. It's the thing that you're like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Ah, <laughs> oh, now I got to yeah. worry about it. Yeah. I mean, there's developers that I work with when they, and, and they say, oh, I, I give zero value to the retail when I'm working on my pro forma. Right? Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right? It's like, oh, this is the values up top. So that's what I'm going to concentrate Which on. Which is right? totally fine. But so if you put a zero value on the ground floor... Just think about what you could do so that you're dealing with that. Because the zero value is actually a negative cost over time. 18 to 30 bucks a foot on carrying costs to keep the lights on, to keep the pipes warm, to make sure that the windows are clean, to make sure that you have that without any leasing. That adds up. Over, and, and if you're wrong by 100,000 square feet on a project, you do the math. Yeah. That is not where you want to be. So I, fundamentally, when I think about retail, forget about the condo, but the project, less is more. Bet, you know, less, better retail is a better solution than being, oh, you totally missed it. We could have had another retailer. Sure, you could have. But you know what? You've been 100% leased for the last 10 years. How do the banks like that? Oh, they love it. Okay, great. <laughs> How would they have felt if you were 75% leased? Ah, it wouldn't have been good for my financing. I would have been in trouble. Great. Yeah. So take the wins where you have them and help yourself on these projects to create the environment, whatever they are, large scale or not. Large scale is more complicated because phasing comes into play. Everyone thinks it's a large project. I remember when I first gotten into the world of real estate in Toronto, they were thinking like a power center. It's 30 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one project is 30 months. A large scale mixed use development has 30 projects. 30 months times 30 projects. That's a lot of projects. Lakeview will have 60 or 70 projects. 
So it's not about saying we got to get it all done. It's how do we make sure that we've set it up for success and then we can roll through the projects. You never want to sell the best towers first or the best site first. You want to actually work into it. You also don't want to bring all the retail on when there's no residential or bring all the residential on when there's no retail. Like it's, it really is an art and a science. And these developments can create such wins for developers, because if you think about your clients, it's not the one project they have, they've got 15. So you get one or two wrong. And I've had clients who've said this that have engaged the Spaniard group. We can't have what happened in project one, two, three happen with four, five, six, seven, because everyone's looking at, we did at one, two, three. And while we sold out, everyone's looking at the retail now or the ground floor and they don't want to buy. Yeah. So how do we fix that? Yeah. That's yeah, interesting. I, I, I had a few discussions with David McComb, who's now Eden Shaw, but was with Concord ADEX for a long time. And uh, and he's like, we didn't think about retail because there was just no demand for retail, all right? Well, we thought there was no demand for retail, right? So all we concentrated on was selling the condominiums. And then just so much of of Concord Park Place, or no, not Concord Park City Place, Place. Con- uh, City Place yeah. is now starting to it has the density and yeah. there's more people on the street and and the few shops that are there are busy but there's still so many realtors offices yeah. and uh you know uh you know the the medical office space with the the fake pictures all on the outside of taking up so much of the walkable space and it's just so if they had uh, stood just, back uh, if they had stood back and said okay so skydome Rogers Center. How many people a year? Concerts. Okay. How many units at total build out? How many events a year? What's happening here? Waterfront's happening here. Okay. I'm not saying that they hit missed the mark by a million square feet, but they probably missed it by about a hundred thousand. And I don't even have to do any analysis to tell you that. Yeah. And the, the question is, is what is their business desired outcome? Because some of these people want nothing to do with retail. So partner with someone who does yeah. like the well, yeah. where you have Rio can, you have allied, you had diamond corp and Tridel that came in on the condos. Great partnership. I want that retail that I'm going to tour this week to be incredible. I want it to succeed. You want every project, whether you're involved or not, to succeed because it's so easy to say, ah, you see, that didn't work. That didn't work. Mm-hmm. Instead of us as an as an industry saying, hey, how did that work? Can I learn more about it? Let's see, why did stock work so well? What's working at the Canary? How do we make this work? How do we continue to do better? Because at the end of the day, the more people that spend time and money in these projects, the better the projects will be. So when I'm working on Downsview with the Northcrest team or Lakeview um, or project in Milton or working on Keyside with Dream and Great Golf, they're all different projects. How do you make sure that they are successful in their own right? Because someone who lives in the beaches isn't necessarily going to visit Lakeview. That's okay. They may go once, but what about the people in Mississauga and Brampton? They're going to go there a lot. How do you make it great for them? Or Downsview has the potential, the Northcrest site, to be a downtown for the greater Toronto area. It's a central development. And it's not about doing as much retail as you can. You've got one of the highest performing malls in North America on a sales per square foot basis that is Yorkdale. Recognize that, compliment it, don't try to compete with it because you're not gonna win. But there are some real special opportunities there in that neighborhood because they've never had their own downtown. Another word you gotta figure out, Ben, because everyone says downtown, <laughs> they think of Toronto. Then you say town center and you think of something fake in the middle of nowhere. Like it's it's the place where people wanna go. Yeah. The main street, the the there there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the city, place, and well contrast is an interesting one. It looks to me as someone who's kind of somewhat removed from from the placemaking that it's an indication that we're taking this maybe more seriously now than we would have back then. And I think that, you know, developers often very rightfully talk about all these barriers that are thrown in their way when really all they're trying to do is deliver housing to a city that needs a lot of housing. But I, I do think that um, there is this benefit of taking place making seriously, both because the value accrues to the project, but it accrues to the industry as a whole. I was I was touring the well just just about a week ago and you 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 walk through that kind of open mall area and you just think like development is an awesome thing. And there are parts of the city where development doesn't feel like such an awesome thing. So, so um, maybe this is just kind of like a, a plea for more people to call your group and to get you involved <laughs> because I, I, I do get the sense that a lot of developers think of their projects as GFA and it's unzoned GFA. Now it's zoned GFA. Now it's built out GFA and not about like the heart and soul of what is it that you're building. Well, and that's the challenge of having a niche market, right? Like, Perhaps 10 years ago when I first met Ben or 15, it's been so long, I probably wanted to work on every project and touch everything. Now I just want to work on great projects with great people and I want to help people so that they can do it again and again on their own. Instead of saying, we have to do everything. You can't do everything. The pie is so big. There's so much room for people to do great things. The challenge is, is that sometimes they're not, listen, numbers don't lie. Ben will tell you this. When you look at the numbers, you can have the numbers tell a story and and explain what the opportunity is, but you can't pretend that a site in somewhere, some you know far off location is going to sell for $5,000 a square foot. It's just not real. It's not real time. Retail is more subjective, right? As opposed to objective, but the rents don't lie. So you know, developers in the downturn of 2008, which is aging me a little bit. I remember this in the United <laughs> States, some guy called me and he's like, I've got a million square feet that I can build here and I'm having problems. I need your help. I said, how much can you absorb today? Zero. I said, so stop saying you have a million square feet to build. You may have had a million square feet to build. (laughs) You no longer can build a million square feet. So let's start with the first phase. And that is one of the things that I think in large projects that is so misunderstood. And this is why you were probably blown away by the well. Phasing can be the greatest success of any project or the greatest failure of any project. There was no opportunity to do a lot of phasing there because of the infrastructure, the tight site, having to build the underground. So they went all in and they did an exceptional, extraordinary job building it. I haven't seen the inside, I've seen the office space, which is beautiful. Sure. But I can't wait to see how the retail performs because I think it's going to be great. But that's the opportunity if you have a large project. Don't just have to go all in. Think about your first phase. What can you do? I think the world's going to come back, Ben, and you're going to have projects that are going to have a retirement residence next to a rental building, next to an affordable building, next to condo, maybe some mid-rise. Like It's all going to start to blend together. I know we have a serious housing demand shortage shortfall here. And I know that there's a lot of demand, but I was just looking at a project today that I'm going to get involved in. And I don't, I don't believe in the Concord ADEX model. <laughs> like it's, it's good for density, but it's not great for city building. Yeah. And this project is nowhere near downtown Toronto. So it's like, when are you, how are you going to absorb that thing? And do you really want to live in that environment? I, my hope is over time, as these projects continue, we will deal with the challenges we have as a market, but it'll also be so hard for someone to decide where they want to live because every place is so great. And that doesn't mean that the retail is amazing. It doesn't mean that the park's amazing. It doesn't mean that the skating rink's amazing, the amenities. It may be one thing that you don't even know that they're doing really well and good for them. Yeah. Yeah. 
I could talk about this stuff forever. I find it so, so fascinating, right? You know, I, you know, when I started out, it was just, you know, I'm just numbers, just straight numbers. Like what's the price per square foot? And as you keep going on, you learn more and more about the the industry and the, the places. And, and it's just a fascinating conversation to see how everything comes together. But uh, we are, we are running short on time, but I do want to ask one quick thing. Sure. Lakeview has got a pier. I love piers. San Francisco, fantastic piers. Why can't Toronto have more piers? Just the weather? Is that the reason why we don't have any piers? Or is it something with the friggin' city? No, <laughs> I can't go out there because the frog habitat or trout habitat or something. I don't know. You're lucky. Lakeview's lucky because it was blessed with a pier because it's the old power generating yeah. station, Ontario Power Generation. So they built that thing to last, that <laughs> pier, yeah. so that the coal ships could come in and drop off the coal that could then feed the system to run the power generating station. Ah, okay. So that was built. It's the second longest pier on Lake Ontario. And with some modifications, we might get the winning, the winner of being the longest. And it's, it's just built to last. People don't build piers today because of a lot of the natural habitat, the concerns and being environmentally sound, but that thing is grandfathered. Yeah. And to me, what I love about it is people are going to come from the region, the area, but even if you wanted to go out onto Lake Ontario and you didn't want to pay to go get on a boat or a taxi, a water taxi, you can go walk out almost a kilometer into Lake Ontario. And the coolest thing is when you're out there and you sort of put your blinders on and look straight out, you on a calm day, you have no idea where you are. It's kind of like the bluffs, right? Yeah. Like they, there's been moments where I've, I've visited the bluffs in Toronto, um, Scarborough Bluffs, where you just don't even know that you're in Toronto because it's this height and this long view. I think it's an amazing thing and we're very lucky or I should say Lakeview Community Partners are very lucky to have that because I think it's going to be an incredible asset to the project. Yeah, I love them. I mean, it's the ones in San Francisco, one, gone to ones in Florida. It's just a memorable experience. Even in England, we were in a small, small town and it had a great pier with people fishing off of it and fortune tellers and, you know, all kinds of just, it's just a, a cool little mix, super small mix of, you know, one guy selling sunglasses and sure. the other guy, you know. But I want to end on this note because I think it's really important. It doesn't have to be big to be special. It's yeah. those, you said something really interesting during this talk about how I love going to, I've been to places where I just love neighborhoods, Corktown, other places where you've traveled. It doesn't have to be all the fireworks and all the Vegas or all of the great destination. It can just be a really special experience for people. And, and the, the hundred things to do is something that I'm quoted as saying a lot when you work on these projects or you come visit them. I hope that there's a hundred things to do. I learned this at IntraWest. It's not just skiing. It's not just snowboarding. It's not just mini golf. It's not just the spa or dog sledding or skating or eating or going to the spa or going for a run or going cycling or playing tennis or playing golf. It's a hundred things. And at Lakeview, we were very intentional about thinking about all the things that were not residential living to do there. And I think it's really important in a project, whether you're big or small, why does someone care? It's not just about we've got the best retailer, so we've got a great opportunity for you, and let's explain it. And, and that, that might sound to some of the listeners of a storytelling. It's all about storytelling. Well, in this market that we're in, start learning how to tell some stories. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good way to, to stop before we go to our last section, which is, which is the rapid fire. It's so, it's so much fun. So basically, we're just asking you quick questions. I know it's hard for you because you're a guy that likes to talk and, uh, and explain some of the reasons that, uh, uh, that you say some things. But 
uh, we've got to keep them to five, five, ten, five ten, words, five, ten word responses. I love so, it. Let's do it. So, Chris, you want to start the first question? Okay. First question. In your experience, do staged homes sell faster than vacant ones in the Toronto market? Yes. Given the rising office vacancy rates, do you see an increase in commercial spaces converted into residential? In the right circumstances, yes, but it is going to be a very complicated system to apply based on the core. What is a reasonable maximum amount of time that someone should spend working in a coffee shop? The amount of time it takes you to drink the coffee. <laughs> oh, that's pretty short then. Okay. That's, I didn't think. I thought you were going to say an hour or something. Um, could Montreal support an NBA team? Ah, great question, and I believe the answer is no, sadly. Oh, okay. Do you see a future in Toronto where a family of five lives on the 50th floor of a condo building? Yes, absolutely. It's just a question of uh, buyer preference. Uh, Manhattan, Chicago, other cities have proven that to be a yes. Okay. Uh, a recent article described the future of Downsview as a city-suburban hybrid. Is that a good planning goal for this area? I think that that is an incorrect statement. I think it is the greatest neighborhood in Toronto that is yet to come. Who is a retailer doing everything right right now? There's no pass in this game. <laughs> <laughs> Take a shot. <laughs> you can say more than one. You can say more than one. I, I love Stock TC. Yeah. Um, I love Brick Street Bakery. I love Roast Fine Foods on St. Clair. Nice. Okay. Um, if you were a developer right now, are you looking to buy low on development lands and bank on a return of the booming real estate market? Or do you go pencils down and wait until there's signs of improvement? I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And as that happens, I'm a buyer. Okay. Last question. Do you like to see communities with a wide range of architectural styles or do you prefer neighborhoods with some consistent look and feel across buildings? I think that you need a consistent urban design with architectural flair. Great. Well, that's a great answer. Well, Rob, this is a fantastic conversation. The time flew. And uh, so if someone wants to engage the services of the Spanier Group, where do they, where do they go? Reach out, SpanierGroup.com, and uh, you can take a little look on our website of what we do, or just reach out on LinkedIn, give me a call. Uh, we're pretty easy to find, but www.spanyourgroup.com. Are you you're not doing any of the TikTok, the Instagram? Are you doing any of that <laughs> stuff? We will. It's just not our thing. I mean, our <laughs> projects speak for themselves and our clients speak for, do a great job of, of appreciating what we do. And, and they're our, our greatest advocate. Awesome. That's it. Well, thanks a lot, Chris. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rob. guys. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Fantastic. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.